week's episode of Cinema 60, Bart and Jenna discuss the Cold War comedy films of the 1960s that laughed at the tensions between the U.S. and the USSR and taught us all how to love the bomb. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Cinema 60. My name is Jenna. I'm Bart. This week, we decided instead of doing an actor or a director that we would do a theme. And uh, what better theme than the Cold War, especially right now as we're uh, having some renewed flared up tension with Russia. Let's just dive back into all that fun Cold War 60s. Go get them. Paranoia. Uh, paranoia. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so instead of going the um, dark and sad route, uh, we figured let's just go for the Cold War comedies. Well, you like comedies. I do like comedies. And I actually find it very interesting. Part of the reason that I suggested uh, this as a theme is that I find it really interesting when you get this sort of weird mix, right? Because for Hollywood to come out with a comedy about war... Really, there's a lot going on there. <laughs> there's this mixture of, of capitalism promoting uh, the artist's maybe a more idealistic version or political agenda and then neutering it into something even stranger and different. And whenever something is actually successfully a satire or successfully even a comedy about a, a, a more serious topic, it's a little fascinating that it even happened in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And there is a really long list, actually, of Cold War comedies, because obviously the Cold War went on for decades. But yeah, I find a lot of this pretty, pretty fascinating. I don't know about you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know that there were, were plenty of World War Two comedies, but there were still, you know, rah, rah, America, go get them, get those Nazis, get those Japanese. Um, but the, the Cold War is something a little different. I mean, it, there weren't actually battles happening. And I don't know, it's, it seems a little more ripe for comedy because it's sort of a, a war that is just about preventing a potential actual war. Right. I, I guess it is this sort of, it's a, it's a media war more than anything. It is this war of propaganda. So we're, we started with uh, one, two, three. Nineteen sixty-one comedy directed by Billy Wilder, uh, starring James Cagney as the head of the uh, Coca-Cola branch in uh, West Berlin. In uh, you know before the uh, the Berlin Wall was built, and he is uh, trying to uh, get himself a promotion and has to show his boss's daughter a safe, enjoyable time while she's in West Berlin. But things go wrong, and he, he has to um, come up with all sorts of schemes to get her out of romantic trouble with a uh, with an East German communist, and it, a, lo a lot of uh, a lot of wackiness ensues. Yeah, I mean, where better to start, really, with our theme here than Berlin? The, you know, a city that was literally 
a rep- visual representation of, of what the Cold War was all about. Right. Being split right down the middle. Um, I, I love this movie. I had never seen this before, and I am actually surprised in some ways that this is not brought up more. I mean, this is what's well known. It's Billy Wilder, but I'm surprised that this isn't brought up more in the same way that Dr. Strangelove is. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure why it wasn't quite so embraced by, by the public. I mean, I think it, it made money. I don't think it was a bomb or anything. Um, just it doesn't, didn't seem to have the lasting power that Dr. Strangelove did. But I found that it did, personally. I mean, like, it made me laugh. I mean, this is such a, again, you know, they pick so many great, the setting is perfect, that um, James Cagney's character is working for Coca-Cola, which was also a a big theme that you'll see even through all of these movies, because Russia didn't have Coke. (laughs) Yeah, really, just about every one of these movies Coca-Cola comes up in. And it's also, this also, it, it, you know, contributes to this, Again, that this war was in, in a lot of ways uh, fought through images and, you know, consumerism. And, you know, instead of these trenches, the, the trench here is, is the line of, you know, who has Coca-Cola and who doesn't and, and fighting between that, which is just it's just fascinating. It's just interesting. Never mind that this was just laugh out loud funny. I was so impressed. Yeah, I mean it's it's so fast paced and the jokes just keep coming that even when uh, one one joke bombs, it's followed immediately by uh, two or three really, really hilarious moments. And it it, it uses that cachetarian uh, saber dance throughout to to sort of uh, keep that keep that pace going. You know the yeah, and that that's what this movie felt like. But it feels a bit stagey. It's really obvious that it's based on a stage play, and that's that's always what kind of kept it from the, the you know, top tier Billy Wilder for me as much as I enjoy it as much as I laugh a lot whenever I watch it just so much of it is set in uh, McNamara's office that's the, the character played by James Cagney but I mean a lot of it is shot on location in Berlin so you know they had they had these locations available to them and they they get used you know a bit there's a, a wacky car chase around and through the the wall that wasn't quite sealed off yet between uh, east and west berlin and and you know uses the city of berlin a bit but but mostly it's just set in mcnamara's office this is a case where i i imagine it wasn't 100 percent what the more conservative producers and hollywood moguls might have thought that this was going to be because it really is a sort of out-and-out assault, a uh, satirical assault on pretty much everything, which is what's so great about it. It's not just about the Cold War. There's, there's all these like interesting and funny sidebars about uh, everything from like Southern culture in America. Because the daughter that is um, being watched by James Cagney, she's like a Southern belle. She's just so, you know... She's naive and she's, you know, interested in looking for men and, and like, you know, it's just sort of like living life to the fullest in this very over the top, just like flamboyant kind of way. And then once uh, she ends up getting pregnant and married to a uh, communist who is dying continually on his sword for the communist causes. But then uh, when her father is uh, about to come, James Cagney is trying to prep the, the communist guy. Uh, saying stuff like, you know, tell him the Civil War was a draw, you know, all these sort of things that he expects that the father is going to want to hear. And he does once he gets there. He's also this sort of caricature of a Southern gentleman 
And then that, and then the, I love the fact that this takes place, you know, in, in Germany immediately after World War II and is being directed by a guy, uh, you know, a, a Jew who uh, lost most of his family in the Holocaust. And so uh, I also felt like there was a big, you know, a lot of uh, shade being thrown at, at Germans during this, which was pretty funny with uh, all of the, the Coca-Cola employees in Germany being basically like Dr. Strangelove's arm that keeps going, shooting up, you know, mm-hmm. at, at uh, inopportune times. I don't know. I, I, it felt like, I mean, I guess it was supposed to be set before 1961, uh, which, is, which is the year the wall went up, I think. So it's it's a little bit closer in time to uh, the end of World War II, but I, I did feel like a lot of the Nazi stuff seemed a little out of date. Like, would it still be funny to 1961 audiences to have the Germans acting like Nazis still and still be in that Nazi mindset? It's definitely a, a riff on uh, the sort of militaristic and um, efficient cult German culture that we still have that stereotype today of, you know, that Germans, uh, you know, are very um, uh, non-emotional and uh, get things done without question kind of attitude. Precision, I guess, is the word. But it did, it felt like one of these, you know, like, I didn't forget. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, the war is over and you killed millions of my people, including my family and I still remember that. <laughs> like, uh, you know, so but that's, I don't know, but it, it's interesting. And maybe, I, you know, part of the fact that all of this is, is have so heavily relies on stereotypes and caricatures, I, I guess is probably, a, you're, you're right, is probably a big reason of why this hasn't been upheld. But I find that the, these caricatures, funny enough, are, they're still around enough today. And a lot of the jokes I thought were, again, they were barbed enough that it wasn't, flat out offensive <laughs> like they seem to all have political agendas whether or not you were the one who was being uh, attacked uh, maybe you'd find it you know funnier or less funny but I mean you could you could view this movie as propaganda in, in, in the sense that it's saying what what are we all fighting about why is there this tension between the US and the USSR you know it, it portrays the the Russians as being as uh, obsessed with stuff with uh, with with you know capitalist culture as the Americans are as the Westerners are is that just for comedy or or is it trying to make a political statement there what do you think I mean in some ways this felt more like a, an attack on capitalism than it did on Russia for sure I mean they do show there's a lot of there's the propaganda of you know, Russia being a little like being backwards or being more, I guess, not as not as powerful or innovative, you know, that they're so obsessed with getting Coca-Cola distracts them from even, you know, uh, their desire to uh, help their company. And that's the those are the older Russians. And then you get the younger communist who is such a he's so uh, diehard politically. He's bought into all of the the propaganda. And yet at the same time, I kind of felt that he almost came across as being one of the few people, he was one of the few people in the movie that actually believed in something and was at least true to it until the end when he gets enough money gets thrown at him that he betrays it. But the ideology and for every single other person in this film really is capitalism and, and being sucked into capitalism, whether or not they actively wanted to be, which is kind of fascinating too. And also, I'm amazed that this got went went through at the time. 
it's, you know, compared to Dr. Strangelove, I feel like it's a pretty harmless satire. I don't feel like the, you know, I, I think it's, it's giving the Americans a good ribbing, but it's not, you know, it's still pro-capitalism. It's still saying that whether or not communism is a good idea, there's, it's human nature to, to want stuff, to, to want money, and there's no way, there's no way communism can work when, when that's really all we want is, is all, the, all the luxuries in life. And that seems, no matter how, like, how much fun it's making of, of capitalism, it, it seems to come back to that point that, that communism has no hope because of human nature. I guess I agree, but at the other end of it, I don't, it doesn't come across as like, and everyone lived happily ever after to me, at least. I think he is sort of defeatist in that he thinks that, you know, capitalism is, is going to eventually overtake and we're all going to be kind of stuck, which is something else that come, is also brought up again in, in other movies that we will discuss. But um, I don't know. I, everyone is, is a bad person. And while I guess certainly with Dr. Strangelove, there's, it's a darker film, which we'll discuss anyhow. But, um, you know, this one is definitely more like a, a traditional comedy even for, I mean, six. it came out in 61, so we're still at that, you know, that border of it not being, it's not outdated, but it is very traditional. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I, I, I really felt that there was a lot more to this than I think even uh, like a studio executive who was just watching it and trying to move on and make a profit. I don't know that they would have caught the subtleties of it. Or maybe they figured the American people are too dumb to understand the subtleties. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe they were, and that's why this movie wasn't... Uh embraced the way it should have been. Perhaps. Um, Shall we move on to uh, Mouse on the Moon? Yeah, so next up was The Mouse on the Moon, 1963. Directed by Richard Lester. Richard Lester, who you might know as also the director of uh, Hard Day's Night. Mm-hmm. Or The Knack and How to Get It, a movie that loves rape. But we're not talking about that movie. Or um, Super- Superman 2 and 3, for that matter. Right. So The Mouse on the Moon is actually a sequel which uh, to a movie that I think that you have seen that I have not seen, The Mouse That Roared. Right. Um, yeah, 1959, Peter Sellers' movie where he plays multiple roles. But uh, yeah, it's not, it's not necessary to have seen that movie to appreciate this one or to understand this one anyway. Yeah, this one, it's about a, a small, tiny little country uh, called Grand Fenwick, which is a very obvious stand-in for the UK uh, to the point where they say basically that this used to be a UK territory and then they broke off on their own, but everything they do is, it's, it's all U- like directly taken from the UK, if not to a sort of caricaturish uh, degree. Mm-hmm. And uh, they need a bunch of money, and so they decide that in order to get uh, the money so they can get specifically plumbing for, was it the king? Of this country? The, um, the prime minister, I think. 
who is a sort of a king, you, you know, in that he's the one who lives in, in the castle uh, with uh, everyone else and then it gets the luxury of plumbing. There is a queen, a, a, a clueless caricature played by Margaret Rutherford, but Mountjoy, the, the prime minister, is really the, the one who's pulling all the strings here. Yeah, and he decides that in order to get money, he will reach out to the U.S. and say that he wants to help them with the space race. They want foreign aid for um, research so that they can build a rocket. And they essentially get caught up in this weird arms race where the U.S. decides that it's a good idea to send them money to do this. And then when Russia finds out about it, they decide to just send them a rocket. And meanwhile, everyone in Grand Fenwick, they're using this rocket as a hot water boiler and they're setting it up, they, they, you know, like they couldn't care less. And that, you know, so they, they think they're getting away with this until finally uh, the U.S. and the Soviet government get wind of this impending uh, launch, which they keep saying, hey, wait, so where's the money going? How's it going? And they say, it's going great, going great. And uh, so they have to basically send the rocket to the moon uh, in order to prove that they can keep it so they can later repurpose it for a hot water boiler. <laughs> and uh, it's a we- this is a weird movie. This was strange. It's, it's a mixture of that sort of 60s, uh, Richard Lester, really, sort of comedies, madcap comedies with uh, a sort of, you know, it, to me, okay, more than anything, more than even a Cold War comedy, even though this is definitely about the Cold War, this really felt like a, um, a, like the UK just feeling really left out and sorry for itself. I don't know mm-hmm. why I said that like a Canadian suddenly. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean? Like it felt more like a, a mourning of the UK after post-World War II, realizing that they're no longer the big player in the in this world disaster. You know, what a prize. Well, yeah. I mean, you've got Grant Fenwick standing in for the UK, but at the same time, the UK does play a role in the movie. They, you know, while the, while the US and the USSR are... Uh, playing these political games to to prove that they uh that they're not in competition to get to the moon first by providing money to other countries so to to help them you know to you know it doesn't matter who gets to the moon first anybody can get to the moon and and the reason the u.s sends money to grant fenwick is because they they feel like there's there's no hope at all that they could ever get there so you know they're they're uh they're sticking by their policy that they will support any country willing to try and uh, and, and create this you know, these rockets to the moon, but uh, it, it backfires on them because uh, Grand Fenwick has this explosive wine that uh, that they are able to use as uh, as fuel for their rocket. Oh right. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, as the, as the U.S. and the and the USSR are are, are um, negotiating how to how to deal with this situation, and when they they find out Grand Fenwick is about to launch their rocket, they ramp up their efforts to get to the moon first. So at one point, you've got three rockets in in space and in, in a, uh, rushing to the moon to to see who can get there first. And and meanwhile, the UK is just sort of standing by and trying to pretend like they've got some kind of role in in, in the space race when when really they're just uh, they're they're more like sports commentators than anything. Commentating on a horse race to the moon. I thought that this ends in a very weirdly rah rah UK message. How do you mean? It just felt very much like it was reassuring itself that the UK is still relevant. (laughs) 
you know that 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 fact that they get to the moon first. So that so the second that they launch this rocket, it's also it's like being run on tea and biscuits essentially. You know, mm-hmm. it's this sort of like it's like two guys, one old dude who says, yeah, "Well, we'll get to the moon, but it's going to take a couple of like months or something, right?" It's something that's pretty slow in comparison to the U.S. and the U.K. that says we're going to do it in a week or whatever. And then they end up uh, miscalculating or something, and they end up landing on the moon first. And then the Russians and the uh, Americans land, and uh, I think their rockets break or something, and everyone basically has to come back with uh, Grand Fenwick's rocket. And then they get back, and they all say, oh, like, oh, how wonderful. We've done it, and, and we helped these, these poor guys out. Oh, we're so important again. But then at the second, the second that that happens, there's actually one really great line about they have a newscaster delivering this news because they thought all of these guys had died. And the newscaster says something along the lines of, you know, with a with funding from the U.S. and a rocket from Russia and uh, a uh, a watch that was made by the, the Grand Fenwick. Uh, a British watch. It's the British who are proud of the fact that they've they've provided the uh, one of the astronauts on the, on the Grand Fenwick ship with a watch because he did his studies in, in the U.K. Right. And it says, like, let nobody say Britain is lagging behind. <laughs> and and it so it feels really I mean like Graham Fenwick it felt like I don't know if maybe he just couldn't he this was originally written as you know being the UK and people got offended uh, you know and by people I mean executives and so they had to create this like totally you know obvious stand-in for the UK and I feel like Graham Fenwick is maybe sort of the UK's image of itself it's sort of a more of a medieval version i mean it doesn't there's no plumbing it's it's sort of the the ye old england version of the uk and and that's part of why it's so ridiculous that they could send a rocket to the moon and i feel like that's the main difference between grand fenwick and the actual uk and the, and the roles that they play in this movie that the uk is you know this modern up-to-date country that's trying to pretend like it's got a role in the in the space race whereas grand fenwick is england as as it used to be the way that uh, you know the, the the british people kind of still envision themselves and uh, that's part of the joke that it's uh, we we can't keep up with the with the with the superpowers uh, but uh, you know if we stick to our traditions we can uh, we can we can still get ahead or you know something like that yeah I don't know. I guess it's interesting. This is a time, too, where everyone is, especially the U.S., rapidly changing and, you know, coming off of, uh, you know, a post-war boom, whereas the U.K. had to deal with a lot of austerity and fallout from World War II. So, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, you don't really think about the U.K. so much when it comes to the Cold War, but it's just weird to me that you would be upset about being left out of, like, this terrible situation. (laughs) Well, I feel like maybe that's where James Bond is coming from, too, right? He's England's answer to the the superpowers battling it out for uh, world supremacy. Here's the super agent who, uh, who, who's proving that the, the, the U.K. still has some influence in the world. That's uh, that's a theory I just came up with now. How do you like it? I like that theory. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know. I don't have too much to say about this movie except that the the comedy does feel a bit dated. It's not uh, not quite up to the the sort of fresh approach that that R- Richard Lester brings to a Hard Day's Night. I think it's still kind of caught up in the in some of the, the old you know, Ealing Studios type comedies that. That England had been producing in the fifties. You know, Terry Thomas is in there doing his typical stiff upper lip. 
British twit thing that I've never found very funny. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't love this. Uh, I don't know. Like, if it interests you in any way, maybe if you're looking to watch all the Richard Lester stuff, then it might be worthwhile checking out. But I wasn't terribly impressed. I don't know. I got the sense maybe that this was stuck in between wanting to do a satire that was even perhaps closer to one, two, three, and getting stuck with executives or the powers that be telling them pull back. <laughs> Well, it is, it's based on a book, and it was written as a sequel to The the Mouse That Roared, which was a big hit. So I, I think part of why Richard Lester's hands were tied was that he, um, he was trying to reproduce the success of that first movie. So couldn't go too far in the satirical direction, maybe. There are a couple of touches. You know, there, there are protesters in Grand Fenwick. The love interest of, of our hero, the main astronaut, represents the youth of Grand Fenwick, and they're always out in the streets uh, protesting something or other because uh, I believe she says, what else is there to do? But uh, that, that it seems like it's making some kind of commentary on, uh, you know, an- anti-nuke demonstrations that were happening at the time. And I guess it's not a very harsh criticism of anybody because it's dealt with so lightly, but... But there, there are a few touches in there. Well, it was certainly better than the next movie. <laughs> or is there something better, I think, is before that? Oh, no, Dr. Strangelove's next. Never mind. Yes. It is, it is definitely not better than Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> by Stanley Kubrick, 1964, and uh, it's a, uh, I mean, it's an all-time classic. I would uh, doubt anybody would be listening to this podcast if they haven't seen Dr. Strangelove. It's one of my all-time favorite movies, uh, way, way, way up there. I I think it's pretty much a perfect movie. Peter Sellers plays three roles, and it's uh, it's about a, a general played by uh, Sterling Hayden, who has started World War III. And when the the President of the United States gets wind of this, there's a uh, meeting in the war room in the Pentagon to to try and prevent uh, a a nuclear holocaust. So it's a a satire about uh, everybody just acting on their own self-interest to try and prevent World War III um, and not, uh, not succeeding. I love this movie to set the scene here, but it, it doesn't surprise me how much you love this movie because it is such a dry, dark movie, <laughs> <laughs> which I feel like is right up your alley. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's always an inspiration to me when I watch it. I, I feel like if, if I could have made one movie in, in my time uh, on this planet, it would have been this movie. It does, it does sort of speak to my sensibility better than just about anything I can think of. The combination of cynicism and goofiness, I guess. That's what it boils down to. I, I love this movie, but I have a hard time watching it. I mean, I've seen this a couple of times now, but uh, it, there, it's just, it's so depressing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, it's it's hilarious. It's so infinitely quotable. It is everything, you know, it's shot beautifully. The the use of uh, light and and just as a black and white movie it's so gorgeous it's beautiful to look at 
the War Room set in particular. Oh yeah, the sets are amazing. It's incredible. I mean, Peter. I love Peter Sellers. Peter Sellers is not only fantastic in three different completely different roles in this movie but he's also i think the king of one-sided phone conversations <laughs> he's just like absolutely brilliant you cannot convince me someone was not yelling at him in russian on the other side of that phone call that's a, that's a funniest scene in the movie for sure when he's talking to the the russian premier who's drunk and can't believe that the president of the united states is telling him that he, he just accidentally uh started a war with russia <laughs> <laughs> And then you're going through the this sort of like all the stages of grief as this this phone conversation is happening is just it's fantastic it's hilarious, but yeah I don't there it's just so depressing to watch because it's all just so real. There there's really you know for for yeah. something that's so in a lot of ways over the top and 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 nuts it is so believable. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, everybody's behaving the way that a human would behave in this situation. There's nothing, it's only the situation that's over the top. And these characters who are placed in, the, in this situation where they have to actually think about the total annihilation of the entire population that makes this, you know, that, uh, that sends us into the realm of the absurd, really. And the fact that, that characters have names like Colonel Bat Guano and uh, Major King Kong, but yeah, other than the names and the this absurd situation, which is not you know that far out of the realm of possibilities, everyone is acting how you would suspect they would act, and and I guess that's why you find it so depressing. <laughs> well, I mean, even this time around, especially watching this right now with everything that's happening in the world and. This whole discussion, especially on propaganda uh, from coming from all political sides in other countries and, and influence, hearing Ripper's whole speech about, you know, the Russians influencing his his um, body secretions <laughs> and that this is a form of mind control. And he had the revelation like when he was having sex because this woman influenced him to, you know, sin and have sex and. She stole his essence. The profound feeling of emptiness when the when the physical act of lovemaking was over. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's just, it's it's like literally laugh out loud, but it's also exactly what you hear right now. This is the the you know that 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 you know I don't know that we had people believing in freaking PizzaGate. You know, like this stuff is not that far. I'm surprised that someone hasn't done. Uh, a fake rumor that is word for word exactly what's said in this movie and gets passed around as like a meme online because it's pretty much in line with the kind of shit that you hear. <laughs> well, fluoridation is a big thing again. There's there's still a lot of anti-fluoridation activism going on, which is what what he's paranoid about. It's the it's the the Russians are putting stuff in our water to to take over our minds. So it is, it's ex extremely up-to-date and topical. But, uh, yeah, what do, you, what do you say about Dr. Strangelove that hasn't been said a million times? It, it's the ultimate Cold War comedy, and uh, none, none of these movies can, uh, you know, you can, you can talk about them in reference to Dr. Strangelove, but uh, there's no possible way it'll, any of them will, will surpass it. Yeah, I mean, it really, it really is. It, it, it's so depressing. It's so funny. It's perfectly shot. 
it's you know exactly why Kubrick is you know as well known as he is and why this movie is as well known as it is it's also compact I actually forgot how short that movie is mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but there's nothing there's no time wasted everything uh, and there's so much character development there's so much great again memorable quotable dialogue and I think it also it, it does such a great job of, of representing the government's excitement at death and, and uh, destruction <laughs> Yeah. Especially in Dr. Strangelove being this mad scientist who, you know, is just delighted that he gets to carry out the final solution because now there's literally no other solution. <laughs> yeah. Which, of course, ends with also this talk of, you know, 10 women to, to one man sexism, you know, which mm-hmm. is which is hilarious, but also was exactly what would have happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Had all the men in that room very excited. Oh, and it's also oh, yeah. the... Um, we haven't mentioned George C. Scott as, uh, as General Buck Turgidson, who is also brilliant in this movie. And he's, he's the same way when, it's, um, when the president asks him if this, the, if this one damaged plane could possibly get through and, and, and bomb its target. On this one plane, they were unsuccessful at, at recalling from the mission to, to nuke Russia. Buck gets pretty excited about how, how possible it, it is that these guys are going to get through and actually nuke the commies. Right. Yeah, he's sitting there talking about how, how uh, wonderful the equipment is and how, how well-trained these boys are. And <laughs> it's just thrill. He's just, oh, boy, look at, uh, you know, and, and that, that, you know, he can show off, you know, that all these people, you're right, everyone acts the way that they're, they're just thinking for themselves. They think about what, what's going to benefit them. They're not thinking about any larger implications. And even when the larger implication is, is you know, looming over them physically in this map of the war room, but also that it's the topic at hand, and yet none of them are really, you know, it does, it's not them. It's the world they're thinking of. They're never thinking about the fact that they're part of the world or that any of this really is going to impact their lives in, in too negative of a way, because even when it, you know, will, they're all thinking about, well, we, could, we can work with this, you know, we can... <laughs> But it's also so believable because it's such a huge thing the you know the destruction of the world that how how can you imagine the you know the deaths of hundreds of millions of people you can't so you have to sort of you have to stick with what you're familiar with and you know you've got the the Russian ambassador who's in the in the war room and Russia is about to get nuked but he's still taking little photographs of the of the big boards in the in the uh, in the war room and they're so short-sighted but what else can you do humans can't function on such a macro level as as the as the scenario that this uh, that this movie is operating on it's they have to act in their own personal interest because that's what we do that's the way we function i will say too that it's it's also disturbing knowing now about um, things that have since happened uh, with nuclear weapons in, in our country. Uh, I, you know, I know it's not from the 60s, but there's a great documentary called Command and Control, which is all about basically how we have nukes stored and stashed around the entire country, and uh, they're just waiting to go off. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there was that one story about in 61 that um, in North Carolina, um, uh, that we dropped a nuke on North Carolina. The, the, there was a a problem with the plane the plane crashed people died and they say in this documentary that the only reason why you know we didn't nuke north carolina was that the bomb fell but the there was a switch that is no more complex than a light switch that just was turned off 
as a safety measure. And because that was turned off and didn't get flipped, you know, magically in the air when it fell, that was the only thing that kept us <laughs> from not having nuked North Carolina. So, I mean, it's just, I love this movie, but I have also a very hard time getting joy out of it, even though it, it actively makes me laugh. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and imagine how real it must have been for people at the time watching this movie, because it was right after the U.S. discovered nuclear weapons in Cuba aimed at us that could, you know, strike us in, you know, in a matter of minutes. You know, if it's if it seems terrifying to us now, it must must have been even more so in the in the middle of of all this nuclear paranoia. Yeah, I guess this is the true gallows humor. Doesn't get more gallows than this. Intelligent gallows humor. Well, the next movie I hated. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to dwell too much on uh, John Goldfarb. Please come home. Do you want to talk briefly about uh, what, what this movie is? Tell the story of John Goldfarb. This came out in 65, uh, directed by J. Lee Thompson, who I don't recognize. Maybe well, he did the original Cape Fear. He's a British oh. director who, who did, um, I think he did, he did a lot of British stuff, but he also is probably most famous for all the terrible Charles Bronson movies he did in the 70s and 80s. A lot of really sleazy, like, rape, revenge, death wish sequel type things. Cape Fear is such a good movie. <laughs> it, it is, but, but so one of the very few this by this director. <laughs> <laughs> this is essentially um, sort of um, a re-spinning of the whole Gary Powers fiasco where we had a, well, a CIA plane... A uh, spy plane got shot down in um, Russia, and then we had to. I, what was I, I'm trying? I'm trying to remember that story now. But honestly, it, it doesn't really have much to do with this, other than the fact that it's about a American who's stranded in the Middle uh, East. Like I don't even know if I can describe this movie because it. it, it there's this. There's Shirley MacLaine actually is in this movie, which is maybe the only saving grace. But she doesn't have very much to to work with here, quite frankly. But and she kind of sucks in it. <laughs> yeah. And she's kind of terrible. Um, she's a reporter, and there is a football player who uh, she, I guess, got some big scoop on calling him, uh, what was it, Wrong Way, uh, Wrong Way Goldfarb or whatever, this, just mm -hmm. this John Goldfarb. And um, so I guess he now is in the military and manages to go the wrong way and crash his plane. He gets stuck out in the Middle East, and I don't, like, now, now, part of this is probably that I am psychologically blocking most of this movie out <laughs> of my mind. I don't really remember why she gets assigned, but she gets assigned, I guess, to, to look, to talk to the leader of this country, who is... Um, no, Peter she's Ustinov. researching the harems. The, she, she's... She wants the the inside scoop on on harem life, so she just happens to be in the in the same palace as as John Goldfarb when he accidentally lands in this country. 
Right. And then she basically, that's her excuse to, to wear a skimpy outfit. But she, uh, yeah, and then runs into John Goldfarb and they realize they both have to help each other in order to leave because she's now trapped in this harem and he is trapped there because he, they can't admit that he made this mistake and is now stuck uh, in, a, in a different country, I guess, because it makes the U.S. look bad. Because isn't this meant to be a neutral country? This Isn't that he's stuck behind the Iron Curtain or anything? Yeah, well, the, the, the Cold War intrigue comes in because the American government wants John Goldfarb back uh, without anybody knowing that he was inside the USSR airspace spying on them. So the, <laughs> the king of Fazia holds him hostage. Uh, l- l- let me see if I get this right. Um, and says that he will give John Goldfarb back if the U.S. will send the Notre Dame football team to Fazia to play the Fazian football team. And if they beat Notre Dame, he will give John Goldfarb back. So that's, that, am, am I getting, <laughs> it, it sounds, it sounds even more ridiculous than, than how it plays out on screen and it, it plays out in a really ridiculous way on screen. But I think that, I think that's what it is. I think that's the plot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the plot here is my two favorite things, sports and racism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the racism is outrageous. The Arab stereotypes are, are appalling. They're, Peter they're Ustinov like... as, the, as the king is just, just, instead of speaking actual Arabic, it's just gibberish. Straight up gibberish. It's, it's literally... They're not even trying. Yeah. <laughs> There's not even like, it, it's like not even the correct accent. It's just straight up gibberish. <laughs> it makes absolutely no sense. I don't even know that this is a stereotype. Like it's so far out offensive that it doesn't even seem based in like even hatred in a weird way. Like it seems like it's just straight up, like we literally couldn't give a shit. And so we didn't try. And I don't know, Arabs sound silly. So screw it. Right? Like there's. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's, it's just racism through thoughtlessness. It's not, it's not necessarily trying to insult Arabs, although they are portrayed as a... As it's 100% insulting. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're kind of portrayed as, as, as sex-crazed savages, too, especially the, once you get to the football. Oh, and there's definitely um, a lot of, like, full-on blackface. Oh, yeah. Like, all of the... They have, like, these sort of... Uh, caricature Moorish servants who who are white people painted black like pitch black with like uh, I don't know like a diaper and holding spears kind of thing it's really horrible <laughs> yeah I feel like the, the king's son is is probably the only Arab American in the movie and everybody else is just uh, painted to, to look like they're Arab and then on top of all of this wonderful stuff, it's also just hardcore sexist. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, there's a scene, because Shirley MacLaine is this sort of screechy, uh, I'll get the story type, but that every single person has no respect for. Like, there's one scene where, you know, uh, they tell her, go join this harem and uh, get the inside scoop. And she says, absolutely not. Like, why would I ever do that? And so he, you know, her boss, like, slaps her on the ass and... Tells her, uh, stop being an ice queen and you know, go out 
there and do it. Yeah. There is some quote, and then after she leaves, I think um, uh, the, the the all the men in the room sit there and they say stuff like, you know, what's that broad's problem? And you know, it's like all she needs is mm-hmm. a good roll in the hay. And then what actually gets her to go is that someone says she's too ugly to make it in a harem, and she gets angry and <laughs> says, "I'll show you." So I mean, it's it was terrible. It was horrible. Yeah, and I mean, she the, her character does have has feminist leanings, and that's part of why she's so abrasive in the movie. Is we're supposed to to think that oh, this you know this you know, these these women who actually uh, think that 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 women deserve respect are are so awful and and uh, and and irritating, and they're always yelling at everybody. Right. And uh, but it, but it's okay because by the end of this movie, she uh, learns her place. Yeah. She falls in love with John Goldfarb, and well, actually, she. But but at the same time, she uh, she she scores the winning touchdown in the football game. So maybe there's some sort of uh, pro pro feminist commentary there about a woman making it in a man's world. <laughs> but uh, but the the movie's way too far gone at that point to, to actually be to me, trying to make that point. <laughs> that almost felt that felt more like a punchline of like you know. These Arabs are so bad at football, even a woman had to score for them is kind of how that felt. But yeah, I don't know. There's so many scenes of her dancing around in, in bikinis, uh, you know, and, and a whole group of, a whole harem of <laughs> women uh, doing this. Nine, uh, a 95% white harem, I should mention, too. <laughs> they all get hosed down with water when they're not already swimming in the, like, Pee Wee Herman size uh, bathtub. And then they're all like, and then when they play football, everyone's wearing sweaters, which seems strange for the desert, but. <laughs> well, they're cheerleaders and that's the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders hadn't broken out of their, their sweaters yet at that point, I guess. There's your feminism for you. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, this, this movie, there, I, I have a, a policy of never turning a movie off. And granted, I, I would have watched this either way for the sake of uh, us being able to talk about it. But boy, I, I think there's moments where I just sort of went into a, a different plane of uh, existence watching this, especially the end. Like any movie that ends in a football game is just poison to me. Including MASH. Do you hate MASH? I hate MASH. Yeah. <laughs> I hate MASH so much. I never liked that it ended with a football game, but I do like that movie. But, uh, you know, I'd say that, so to relate this in some way to the Cold War, to me, for, you know, if, I'm, if I want to be a little generous here, I, I feel like this is actually sort of re- very representative of, of, of the flippant American attitude uh, towards anyone who's not American. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like the the fact that this is a movie that's about taking a stupid mil- American military mistake and then turning it into this like pro Americana, you know, uh, like they're stupid, like the Arabs are dumb, and the Russians aren't even worth talking about because we're so great. I might disagree with you there. I mean, it's the American government, all all the uh, all the guys in suits who are trying to get Goldfar back are all real stooges. The whole setup is that the uh, the relations with Fazia are are terrible because they're, uh, the American ambassador presented him presented the king with uh, pigskin luggage, and of course this is a Muslim country, so that's a big faux pas. And you know, there's at least you know the makers of this film were aware enough of uh, of of actual 
you know, Arab traditions to understand why that would be a big deal. But uh, it's just, you know, sort of one mistake after another that the guys in suits are making and they uh, just, it's, it's the least interesting part of the movie watching the, you know, the, the actual like Cold War satire where the, the, the government agents are fighting with each other and insulting each other and, and you know, falling asleep on the couch and not knowing what to do. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really lame satire, but I don't think it's pro-American. I don't know that the movie is pro-American, but I feel like the attitude kind of... I, but I don't know. I mean, I can see what you're saying. It definitely isn't a movie that you see and then leave thinking like, boy, are we great. But you do leave thinking, boy, those Arabs are dumb, right? You, yeah. you leave thinking, <laughs> boy, uh, you know, like women in the office place is dumb. I, I, I'm just trying to think of what message you could possibly come away from this other than, than the, that sort of, you know, the hubris of... of uh, dismissing everything else you know football comes away i guess is a good thing in this movie <laughs> yeah i i think in the end it just wasn't supposed to be anything other than a goofy comedy and i think it took what may have been a, a fairly sharp satirical script and just turned it into insulting wackiness and and that said i mean it's a terrible 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 movie but i i kind of enjoyed watching it <laughs> I didn't I didn't really find it a chore to get through at all. I was appalled by much of it, but it also sort of kept me going. I just wanted to see what it would try and and pull next. And I think there were there were some legitimate laughs in there too. Like I I liked the the king's train set and it would um the the king is obsessed with toy trains and the and the trains would just go by carrying these these random animals uh and birds and I don't know. There I I got a few chuckles, few like honest chuckles out of it i think oh man i well i, I like the train set in general <laughs> that was cool i liked all the, the animals there was like a, a very strange mix there was like a pelican at one point but uh, none, none of this made me laugh actually you know what the one thing that made me laugh was the theme song <laughs> sung by shirley MacLaine. And I and in, I really in the most grating way possible <laughs> i really wish that more movies had theme songs like that that's perfect actually uh, this movie was written by the guy that wrote The Exorcist. Oh, yeah. Which is a fact. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of why I believe that, uh, that probably the script is better than the, than the movie that you see on the screen. But I, I, don't, I don't have any particular feelings about William Peter Blatty. I mean, I think The Exorcist is a good movie, but uh, you, it, it really has, has no connection to this movie whatsoever. Well, the next movie I I liked, I think, a lot more than you did. Oh, I had so much more difficulty getting through this movie than I did John Goldfarb, Please Come Home. I mean, uh, objectively, I guess it's a better movie, but it's it's miserable. <laughs> it's, uh, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. Sixty-six, directed by Norman Jewison, uh, starring Alan Arkin and Carl Reiner. Basically, it's uh, it's about a uh, a Russian submarine that gets 
stranded on a residential island off the coast of Massachusetts, and the Russians send a, uh, a landing party to try and get a boat to pull the sub off a uh, off the sandbar that they're stuck on before anybody notices that they've gotten stuck there. And of course, um, it doesn't happen that way. So you've seen this a couple of times. This was my second time watching this. So it's funny, I, I enjoyed this. Uh, so the first time I saw it, I thought it was okay. I just didn't laugh out loud very much. And this time around, I uh, still didn't really laugh out loud. <laughs> it is not funny. Though I will say, uh, the, the one thing I like, uh, the one thing that makes me laugh in this movie is, is Alan Arkin in general, I think is great. Uh, and I mean, it, they brought in actual Russian speakers, unlike John Goldfarb. And the jokes I think that are that really land well, just as pure humor are you know the russians trying to communicate like the line of you know you get all these russians who are in disguise because the the whole island's up in arms trying to find them and you know their disguise is essentially to, to wear a jacket and then try and say things in, in english and they, they have this line about emergency everybody to get from street which reminded me of uh, that scene in star trek 4 <laughs> Where, uh, you know, do you know where the uh, naval vessels are uh, standing in the middle of uh, San Francisco during the Cold War? You know, stuff like that is is, uh, amusing to me. But uh, I think part of what I liked about it this time around was that I wasn't wasn't looking for the joke so much uh, because I knew that it wasn't really my type of humor. But I did actually, um, I really kind of clued into its more political message this time around. And I thought it was actually refreshingly progressive. And also, again, interesting that that they could get away with doing something like this in the middle of, of this you know, of demonizing the other side where you have a movie where you have a bunch of Russians who are actually really nice. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, if not, you know, sort of weirdly warm and cuddly, which might have... Except for the submarine captain who's, who thaws out a bit by the end. But, uh, but yeah, they're, they're lovable, these, these Russians. And it was interesting to see. I mean, I can't imagine us really doing. Uh, we, I mean, you'll see on television shows and and movies about the the one person who's the good guy in a you know a sea of, of bad guys. But this one felt very humanizing. I thought, and and because of the fact that the bad guys were all sides, the bad guys were you know the 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 fear and paranoia of the Cold War, uh, both for Americans and for Russians. And, um, you know, the terror of, of what war actually looks like and the terror of nuclear war, especially, you know, and, and this time around, um, I guess, you know, instead of shooting off jokes uh, that were like nationalistic boasting or talking about how stupid the other side is, like the, the target of ridicule is, is, that a, is that paranoia and that propaganda and bloodlust. And the Russians, uh, you know, on a human level, everyone learns to relate to each other. Uh, they realize that when you're actually sitting there speaking to someone who is Russian, uh, they're actually a human being, and um, you know, they're just as terrified as you are. It's sort of, um, I mean, and I guess it's a sort of infantile concept, but I think it needs to be said continually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the message in all of these movies that we watched is essentially that the U.S. and the USSR are essentially the same. There's no difference between us. But this is the only one of the movies. Well, 
until we get to the president's analyst, where the the, the Russians are made to be lovable and we're, we're supposed to actually really like them. So, I mean, I think it's, it's a more, it is, I, I think you're right about that, a more humanistic version of this, of this message of why are we fighting when we're all just exactly the same. Even Mouse on the Moon is, is uh, you know, it has the U.S., it, it makes these, these like very clear parallels between how the U.S. and the USSR responses to, to this, the space race are, is exactly the same, and there's literally no, no difference between them. They, they, there are even some split-screen shots where it shows that both the U.S. and the USSR are doing exactly the same thing at the same time. And I think that that carries out through all of these movies that we're all equally, you know, warmongering, we're all equally, like, just obsessed with, with you know, being on top. But, uh, but this movie is, uh, is different in that it's, it's uh, more, it, it's humanizing. I think it also helped to have actual, uh, you know, Russian-Americans being cast in this movie because it also sort of goes to show that, like, the, a lot of people involved, a lot of actors, especially Jewish actors, were from this area. <laughs> Including Alan Arkin. He, yeah. he actually could speak Russian. Yeah, I love Alan Arkin, but I didn't think he was very funny in this movie. He was, it was a lot of eye rolling and uh, funny mustaches. Yeah, so what did you not like about this movie? I mean, it's just so by the numbers. It's the, you know, it's got this, right in the middle of it is there's this romance between this, you know, teenage blonde girl that they've, they've thrown into the story for no particular reason so that she can make eyes at the, at the, the hunky blonde Russian, young Russian who's part of the landing party and there's a whole little love affair between the two of them and and uh, it's just a lot of running around and, and shouting and uh, just, it's not funny at all. I thought, I actually, I hated Carl Reiner in this movie. Really? Not so much his acting, but his, the, his character, how he's, like he's just motivated. His son keeps goading him to like, to, to fight these Russians, and it just, I don't, it seems like such a lazy way to, to, to keep the story rolling, and it's that, it's a mad, 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 mad world style of comedy, where it's just a lot of people running around and making a lot of noise, and behaving in really ridiculous ways, and it turns out that this movie was actually written by the same guy who wrote It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, so I only discovered that after the fact, but, uh, William Rose. So so that's I think that's part of it. It just seemed I don't know. I guess this movie was a huge hit and it's it's still beloved by a lot of people. And I sort of understand why. It's a it's a nice wacky comedy with a good message. And I think it it does have a, a really good sense of place. Like I I I I do there is a real draw to this this island community and I like that about it. That's about all I liked about it, I guess. I think the, the biggest downside to this and why I don't love this movie and probably why a lot of the comedy doesn't work for me is that it gets overly sentimentalist 100%. You know, the, the babysitter's uh, romance with the Russian kid is just beating you over the head with that same message that you're getting from literally all sides of this movie. <laughs> so, you know, why even bother? And the, the climax... Talk talk about that climax where where the 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 kids have gone up in in the belfry and one falls out and the Russians and the Americans have to work together to 
to save this kid is so sappy. Super sappy and super dumb. It's, it, but it, you know, and again, it's just like, it feels like, if hey, if you didn't get the message the first time around, it but part of that to me, I don't, I almost can't fault it because I feel like this is what you kind of need to do to get to all levels of, of humans. <laughs> like for me, you know, this isn't a movie for me. It doesn't feel like a movie for me. It feels like a movie for the, the general public, which, you know, isn't to say that everyone's dumb, but we're kind of dumb. You know, and, you know, maybe you have to just show, like, a, a child being put in a dangerous situation and all these adults working together in order to humanize and and really hammer that message home to, to get all the, you know, the housewives and the, you know, the grumpy dads and the children and the whatever and the teens. You know, like, I, I, I actually like that his son was such a bloodthirsty little jerk. Because it, it felt like um, a commentary on propaganda and who's most susceptible to it. And it's children, of course. And then you have the, the old guard of the island here who are all whipping out their sabers to go fight these Russians. And they're all about 105, mm-hmm. also full of bloodlust and ready to recapture the glory days that they never actually had. And then I actually, what I liked about Carl Reiner's character is that he just felt very reasonable. He's like the selfish guy. He's there to, to write um, a script for a Hollywood movie uh, and get away from the city. And then he's thrown into the situation where his son thinks he's a, you know, wuss for not um, killing this Russian immediately when the guy walks into the house. Uh, and then... Yeah. You know, he's also caught between being reasonable. Like, do you really want to kill somebody? Like, if you're if you're presented with someone, is your first reaction seriously like grab a gun and shoot without asking? Because that's what kind of the government wants you to do. But it's not a like a human reaction. It's not like a reasonable reaction. So I kind of like that he was caught between trying to be a man and and uh, trying to be reasonable. <laughs> But which, again, wasn't very funny. But I, I like that this was a concept that was being brought up. All right. I guess you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I still don't like it. No, that's fair. I didn't. I don't know. I, I don't know why I liked it this time around or if it was just because I hated Goldfarb so much. <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe also the fact that it ends with... Um, all of these Americans as uh, human shields for the Russian ship in order to let it get away was sort of intriguing because you know damn well the U.S. would have just bombed the crap out of all of them. (laughs) But uh, that was kind of wish fulfillment maybe. But I'm glad they didn't bomb Alan Arkin because he's a treasure. Yeah. Um, Hopefully we'll get to some some good Alan Arkin movies uh, on this this podcast, which means we can't do his, uh, his Inspector Clouseau movie. I don't does he, maybe he doesn't have anything good in the in the sixties. Maybe it's the seventies before he starts to really shine. I think you're I think you might be right. But that might be worth a good episode anyhow. So should we uh let, let's move on to the president's analyst. Was it was a very pleasant surprise for me. Had you seen it? 
No, I, th I, I feel like maybe I'd seen some scenes on TV before, but, uh, but no, it was pretty much a, a fresh viewing for me. And it's a crazy movie. It's a really crazy. It, the president's analyst, I feel like if you're listening to this podcast because you love um, the dream of what 60s movies are, if you love that mix of kitsch with pop culture, the president's analyst is it, it's almost a cliche of all of that, except it's the it's intelligent. Yeah, <laughs> it has moments of, of, of being very 60s in, in a you know, a not great way, but it also is really, um, I don't know, it's the best of both worlds, I think, of, of that kitsch. It's directed by uh, Theodore J. Flicker, and um, it's about a uh, an analyst played by James Coburn, who basically gets recruited by, now they, they change the name, they, can, they don't say CIA or FBI. CEA and FBR. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I believe he gets recruited by the CIA to become the in-house psychiatrist for the president. Mm -hmm. And he is super thrilled about this because, you know, who wouldn't be? You get to be, you get to know all of these top secret thoughts of the most powerful man in the world. And I believe they, they sort of imply that the president's still JFK, right? They, yeah, you never see the president. I'm not sure if they were trying to, well, I mean, it would have been 1967, would have been Johnson, I guess. You know, the the president plays such a such a non role in this movie that it doesn't really matter which president they're talking about. But it's it's a president who's mixed up in all the the craziness of the '60s. You know, the Vietnam War and the and the Cold War and and you know all this paranoia and and you know civil civil rights stuff at the time. You know, just all this upheaval and uh, and this idealistic psychiatrist James Coburn goes into this you know really excited like thinking he's really he's really made it and he's you know thinks that what what could be better than to be the president's analyst and he and he finds out really quickly that uh that the that nothing could be worse than being the president's analyst right because this job uh includes flashing red lights whenever the president wants to talk to you which is whenever the president gets a free moment which is completely uh not on any schedule uh, so james coburn will go home after commuting from uh you know the white house and then lay down and then at three in the morning all the lights go off and he has to run back to the white house and get there in time in order to have his hour-long session so very quickly he hates this job <laughs> because there's just no rhyme or reason to it and then plus he complains that the president has so much on his mind that he can't james coburn can't tell anyone because he can't even discuss it so he can't even go to uh, his own psychiatrist and let the burden off because uh, it's all top secret so eventually he um, starts to get really miserable and is considering quitting and then realizes that he can't because now he knows all these top government secrets. And so he d develops paranoia and starts to realize that everyone's watching him and uh, that he is actually being stalked by uh, other countries, you know, Secret Service. He's also, uh, you know, he doesn't trust his, his live-in girlfriend anymore. And so he decides that the only way to get out of this is to run away and uh, see where he can hide for the rest of his life, which then turns into this really weird madcap story of, um, you know, he jumps in a, a car with a family in Jersey who 
all love guns and um, self-defense are also very paranoid. A liberal New Jersey family. W one of my favorite parts in the movie is when James Coburn realizes that this that, that, that there are a lot of guns in the house. That when the uh, when the dad says, uh, "Well, we have to carry guns uh, because all our right-wing neighbors have guns, and and we'll 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 disarm as soon as they do." And I think that's one of the sharpest moments in, in the movie. Oh, yeah. They're very Phil Oaks, love me, I'm a liberal type liberals of, you know, like, oh, we love. We, they, I think he even says we're liberals because civil rights, but we're not we're not into all that, you know, that left wing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a really smart movie that's not entirely successful. Like, I, I feel like once the paranoia kicks in for him, it's not that transition isn't very successful. I don't know. It's it's like he he has a dream that everyone is a spy and uh, and is after him, and he wakes up from the dream and assumes that his girlfriend is also a spy, which we find out is actually the truth. But uh, there's sort of a disconnect there between what what the audience knows and what James Coburn actually knows. I don't know. It it didn't play quite right for me. So I feel like that's that's part of what keeps this from being a, a Cold War classic and a, a real, you know, sort of counterculture touchstone is it, it doesn't quite succeed at what it's trying to do, but I really like what it's trying to do. It, yeah, it totally unravels, and which is in some ways how I think it falls back into that 60s cliche. It, it, it gets so wrapped up in how crazy it is, it, it just loses the thread completely. It's really, it's, it's just, it's 60s, like, psycho insanity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love when he takes up with the, uh, with the hippie band, though, and, and poses as a, as, a, as a band member playing the gong. Yeah, they meet up after a, a performance at Café Wa. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's when it turns really 60s, like the flower power stuff that was so popular and, and you're seeing all the time in movies, in 19, American 1967 movies, and... You know, it's got the psychedelic music and the and the strobing lights and the free love and it and it hits all the marks it needs to for it to qualify as a counterculture movie. But it's also making a commentary on on how you know ridiculous they are and and uh, I don't know. I guess it's not there aren't any sharp satirical barbs directed at the hippie movement, but it yeah, it's not supportive. It seems more than just. Let's throw in this psychedelic club because we have to, because that's what that's what's popular now. You know the way, like in Coogan's Bluff, where uh, where there's the scene and a similar scene in a club. It feels like it's it's just thrown in there so that we can get a, a feel for the times and to appeal to the the kids in the audience. Whereas it, it, in this movie, it seemed a bit more motivated by showing the full range of political feeling in the country at the time. Where you've got the paranoid right wing FBR agents. Um, AKA FBI agents who, um, who who are really cutthroat about you know just want to want to have uh, the analyst assassinated to the, the the more liberal CIA who actually did you notice that one cutaway to the the, the CIA offices where all the all the agents are in plain clothes and a lot of them are in, in kind of hippie garb. Yeah. <laughs> so I, f I feel like they're it's sort of portraying the CIA as the as the left wing government agency as opposed to the right wing FBI. And uh, I don't know, it's just, we, we're sort of taking a tour through the whole, all of, of the political feelings. Of... It definitely felt very dismissive of the counterculture. But it also, I mean, it was also pretty equally dismissive of 
most everything else. It was, I mean, this was a kind of really a pessimistic movie in a lot of ways, which is why it's very funny. Um, I mean, the fact that James Coburn is dating, uh, he's 40 in this movie and he's dating a, a, a girl who looks like she's like 21 or something. Mm -hmm. And she has all these lines about how she's like a, I'm a natural born female slave for you, which (laughs) seems tongue in cheek, but also she says it on like a white shag carpet, you know, barefoot waiting for him to get home from work. And then immediately he wants to marry her, you know, even after all of his, um, you know, uh, having like some profound conversations about psychology, you know, it, it, it still kind of falls into those, traps and the hippie stuff you know there's a whole uh, love scene in the grass with Coburn and, and this hippie girl named Snow White and uh, you don't, you don't see anything but it's just it's stupid mm-hmm. but I will say that there is a good um, a genuinely funny uh, like spy versus spy thing that happens during that where yeah the best set piece in the whole movie is right where, where every country you know they're, they're one spy who's out to get him is starts to, you know, crawl towards him as he's, you know, making love in the grass and then gets stabbed in the back by the next country who gets stabbed in the back by the next country. And it happens about six times. And then the once, uh, you know, he's done with Snow White, they walk away in the field and the camera uh, pulls out and you see all these dead bodies just like <laughs> surrounding them. <laughs> and it's uh, in the end, it's the... Uh... KGB agent who saved his life, and this is, I, I mentioned earlier how in The President's Analyst we also get a, uh, a humanized Russian, and he still, um, you know, takes some serious psychoanalysis for the, the KGB agent to sort of break down and become a, a sweetie pie and on the, the analyst side, but uh, he does. He uses, instead of, um, you know, Coburn has been kidnapped by uh, you know one of these groups, the the Liverpuds, <laughs> Canadian spies who are posing as the Beatles. Yeah, the Monkeys, Beatles. And, and the the KGB agent has has uh, has snuck onto the ship and is uh, is once again the the final uh, spy who, who's who's got uh, got Coburn in his control. And Coburn has an opportunity to, to pick up a gun and shoot his way out of the situation, but instead he decides to psychoanalyze the spy. And, uh, and all it takes is a little bit of understanding uh, for, the, uh, for the Russian to become sympathetic and, and want to help Coburn uh, you know, get, just get back to his normal life. And, he has a great quote about, he says, uh, you know, I was miserably unhappy, but I just thought it was my Russian soul. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually the, so that, that Russian agent is, is Severn Darden, who's, um, uh, he was a, a Second City uh, alum, like Alan Arkin. And he's very funny. He's, he's one of these, you know, character actors that, that don't really get much recognition uh, anymore or are remembered too much, but um, he's great. Uh, you know, I, I actually really liked his character a lot in this. I love um, the scene where um, the other CIA agent who's played by uh, Godfrey Cambridge meets up with him on the street when they're both uh, in like hippie costumes. And uh, he comes over and he's, uh, you know, like, like grabs him around the neck and they like start like play fighting. And like, it's very clear that the CIA is working in conjunction with the KGB. And that they're all totally friendly, like they even, you know, like he comes over and says something to him in Russian, and he says, oh, no Russian, and please, I'm spying, no Russian. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, it, it was, that was pretty great. I love that connection. And then I also, there's a great line where he says something along the lines of, you know, as, as America gets more, um, you know, socialistic, 
uh, Russia is going to get more capitalistic and then pretty soon we're going to meet in the middle and, and hold hands. And you're like, oh, that's literally, yep, you got it. This is 1967. That's the moral of the story. <laughs> was, yeah, and it's also like, yeah, no, you, yep, that's exactly what happened. You know, mm-hmm. we, uh, and, I, and it's something I think is also gets reflected in all of these other movies. It's, you know, again, with, with this, uh, you know, note about how, how similar Russians and, and Americans really are at the end of the day. Though there is this one crazy twist that we didn't talk about, that the, the ultimate bad guy, even even more evil than, than the Russians or uh, the Chinese is, uh, in fact, uh, drumroll. The phone company. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I was wondering if we were going to leave that as a surprise to you know, anybody who, uh, who hasn't seen this movie that seeks it out. But I, I, guess, I guess it's too big to not discuss because it is kind of the whole point of the movie is that in the end it's, uh, it's a corporation who's really uh, the evil force in our world it's weird i don't know like they, they, there's a lot of complaints in this movie about how like you can't get through a, a gosh darn phone line and then when james coburn gets kidnapped in a phone booth and then taken to this like you know spaceship looking uh, headquarters of the phone company he then gets told that they need I don't even... I'm trying to remember why they needed him. I guess... Oh, because he has the president's ear. Right. And they say you have to tell him that, uh, you know, what we need is automated phones. <laughs> we need to <laughs> inject phones need... into everybody's brains. Yeah. And we need to convince the president this of this. weird... <laughs> I mean, number one, and we're kind of already there. Mm-hmm. But also, it, it's sort of that, you know, everyone's offended that you're going to cut out this, the middleman that you'd cut out the human beings who I guess are doing the job. So that's already happened. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's like the phone company. And it's also, he, he has this, this like very, you know, it feels like James Bond villain speech that's given to him by like this robot (laughs) Mm -hmm. who looks like a a perfect sixties man, you know, who's all smiles. And, and uh, it sounds like, sounds like, you know, all of those like uh, corny sixties commercials, where he's making him a sales pitch with with uh, you know '60s animation uh, included. I don't, but it, I, it. So I'm not. Maybe I'm missing. <laughs> maybe you had to have been in the '60s. I, there's something weird to me about why why it's the phone company. I guess like there's something about the the phone company knows everything. I guess that, that's a position of power. I there is like a line. Um, about you know phone tapping between uh like the russians and the americans that's definitely the, that was a justified paranoia yeah and i i mean and i think there it probably was a legit feeling at the time that um you know why why can't the phone company do their jobs how come you know maybe it's just a you know, matter of reception or, or using the the payphone you know payphones not working properly or but there's a there is that line about how there's one thing that unites everybody in the world, and they all hate the phone company. And I, I think right. that's probably based on you know a popular joke at the time. That's that's my sense of. But it, I I think it sort of broadens the you know the phone company into just you know these mass conglomerate corporations who want to who are just trying to um, you know they're the ones who are really responsible for trying to take over the minds of the of the world. You know so and. Uh, I mean, in the end, it shows that it's not just this one guy making the sales pitch who's the automaton. It's the the whole phone company is a, are, are a bunch of pod people. So, I, and I think that that's probably a sort of a hearkening back to like uh, you know invasion of the body snatchers or something where 
you know, there, there's this paranoia, this fear of communists turning us all into, into, into pod people, but, uh, but this movie seems to be saying that it's, no, it's not the Russians, it's, it's American greed and, and it's corporate greed that's, uh, that's, that's the real enemy. I think you're right. Anyhow, I, li- I like this movie. It's a weird one. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe in, in some ways the least Cold War, even though there's, it's a big set piece in this film, but it's, it's more of a, an out-and-out satire on, I think, paranoia, and uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, it's not as... Um, it, uh, it addresses the Cold War a lot more than our, our, our next film does. Right, so next... We wanted to do a film, you know, we wanted to do a film in general. We wanted probably, you know, if they had really existed, which they might, but we weren't, we didn't find much. Uh, We wanted to do something from the Russian side, you know, why not? That's the other player here. But Russia really was not very interested in, uh, you know, addressing the Cold War, it seems. It didn't seem that way. At least if if the USSR was making um, political movies, they were probably more propagandistic and more, you know, not turning the, the Americans into, into comic figures and, and, you know, more, you know, actual enemies. I don't know. This is all speculation because really we just couldn't find a, a Russian film that, well, I mean, that, that dealt, that, that was a Cold War comedy. Yeah, there was definitely no comedies. I mean, the, the Russian, you know, the, the government was not, they weren't interested in any sort of satires that would undermine their own position for sure. Because there was actually a lot in this movie that um, was even controversial for Russian films at the time, which seems to be, you know, from from what I know about Russian film history, uh, especially, uh, you know, uh, during during this era, there was a lot of, of filmmakers just trying their best to sneak anything past the censors. And, um, you know, the stuff that, that does sneak past, like we think that, you know, an American film industry was very conservative and still is very conservative, but uh, there's plenty that uh, that Russia was always far more hardcore about that. <laughs> well, so the movie we're talking about is The Diamond Arm. either 1968 or 1969, depending on your source, directed by Leonid Gaidai. And uh, it's a hugely, hugely popular movie that's, you know, remembered as one of the, the best Soviet comedies by former Soviets. It's uh, not very well known outside of the former USSR, I don't think, but uh, people who, who saw it at the time remember it very fondly. Every Every... Every Russian has seen this movie, yeah. apparently. And it's about a family man who goes on a cruise. He's meant to be going to Turkey, though they don't film it in Turkey. Yeah, he, he ends up in, in Istanbul and is mistaken for another Russian who's supposed to be smuggling some, uh, some jewels and gold coins out of Istanbul back to Russia. And so he gets knocked out. He, he, he slips on a banana peel and gets knocked out. And when he wakes up, he's got... Uh, a melon. A melon. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's, a, that's actually a plot point. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, well, the, so the gangster um, character is played by Andrei Mironov, 
Uh, and his character's name, I'm going to totally butcher. So I'm, I think I'm going to stick with Andre. Um, I apologize to all of Russia. But, uh, yeah, no, he um, is this very charming, very well-dressed, uh, actually male model who um, is on the ship so that he can connect with these other criminals in Turkey and then pick up all of these uh, diamonds and, and gold and jewels, which the opening credits tell us are all real. <laughs> <laughs> and so the, the code word is damn melon. And so then when um, he, he befriends, you know, to look natural, he befriends uh, Yuri Nikulin, whose character is uh, Senya. He's a family man, and so, uh, you know, he mistakenly uh, slips on, on an actual melon in, within earshot of these gangsters and then comes to with a cast on his arm that has been laid with all these golden jewels. Right. So when he gets back to Russia, the majority of the movie is the smugglers trying to get these jewels back from, uh, from Semyon and uh, creating all sorts of crazy plots to make it happen. And at the same time, the police has been clued in that, that this is what's happening. The uh, Semyon knows that, that he's got these jewels in his arm, and, and so he's, he's working for the police to try and trap these smugglers. And that's, I mean, that's really just the, the, the basic plot so to, to set up these, these comic set pieces where the, where the smugglers are trying to get their jewels back. And uh, I, uh, I found it pretty entertaining. I think I maybe laughed more than you did at this movie. I, I thought the whole fishing uh, scene was, was pretty entertaining, where uh, Andre uh, brings the family man on a fishing trip, and uh, every, every time uh, he throws his line into the, the water, the, uh, the, the other smuggler is, is a scuba diver who's putting uh, fish onto his hook, so every time he throws in, he pulls out a, another fish. And, yeah, um, I mean, this, this movie is actually... Um, I was surprised at how funny this movie was, actually. I didn't, there wasn't too much that made me laugh out loud, though that fishing trip, there is a scene where the the gangster male model character ends up stuck on an on, on what he thinks is stuck on an island and then a, a very young boy walks past him and is like sir because he's screaming for help and this kid's like uh what like what's up and then he has this vision that the kid is um jesus walking on water because there's a clearly a sandbank that is just under just direct like an inch under the water and then uh he has this like you know fantasy scene which I'm sure was probably a little bit controversial in some ways, even though it's pretty much making fun of religion. Uh, but the best part of that is then once he sort of snaps out of it, he just like pushes the kid over into the water and walks past him. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I was actually surprised at how, how amusing this was and how accessible it was because really it, it's being told through the language of slapstick. Like there was, I think there was a handful of jokes for sure that I would clear, very clearly miss because you could tell that they were puns or that they were in reference to something that perhaps, you know, I'm not clued into as someone who doesn't speak Russian. The, the, there's a bunch of songs that, that were, that obviously rhymed, but in English were very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> Although it did demonstrate that, uh, that Andre is a, is a heck of a dancer. He was hilarious, actually. I was, I was very impressed yeah, with him. Uh, he was really He was good. this good doofus criminal. Uh, he had some really solid timing he, uh, yeah, was doing some, some great dancing. Uh, I, also, the main character, um, Nikulin, uh, was great as this sort of hapless family man. And he kind of reminded me in, in some ways of Carl Reiner and the Russians are coming, actually. 
It kind of looks yeah. like them, I and mean, I think they wear similar caps <laughs> too, don't they? they? <laughs> I liked them a lot more than I liked uh, Carl Reiner. But this is this is clearly one of those comedies that was not intended for an international audience. It was meant for for a local audience. So it's um, it is kind of impressive that it's that it played so well. I mean, it's not. It's definitely not trying to be art. It's just trying to make you laugh. Yeah, I like there is a there is one joke where um, uh, someone's walking their dog on the grass and uh, uh, Nicolin comes over and and the 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 woman who who runs the housing complex is this very like you know stuck up good Soviet citizen who uh, is very nosy and busybody about what everyone's doing and and sticking to the rules. And he makes some some comment about you know oh, a dog's a man's best friend you know like leave leave the leave the guy alone and and she has some line about a man's best friend is the superintendent you know <laughs> very much like which you know is is just this sort of you, you know this character you you know this this person who uh, I don't know stuck up their own ass in in favor uh, over hu- uh, like a uh, actual human interaction I found it interesting that that Nikulin is. Um, he he also is a very good Soviet citizen. He immediately goes to the cops. He then mm-hmm. has to work with them. And the way that he is then forced to work, he ends up ruining his public image, which is a big deal. He he almost ruins his marriage, uh, but all in the in this the name of of you know catching criminals and stopping corruption. Uh, so it's kind of kind of very straight laced. Yeah, but the, but at the same time, there's a. I don't have a real sense of how strict the tenets of of communism were at the time. I mean, there's a lot of all of these characters, including the superintendent, who's you know this good this good Soviet is is obsessed with money, and she's she says how 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 come how come Nikulin has all this money that he can take taxis everywhere, and and she right. you know wants wants a piece of it. She wants. You know, she has a scam where she she wants all of her tenants to buy these lottery tickets so so she can she can make some money and you know they they get evicted if they don't buy the these lottery tickets from her and and just the the whole foreign travel I I feel like it was really easy for him to get on this this ship and uh, you know there's no sense that that you know they were worried about Soviets defecting or anything like that. I mean, I, I grew up in the '80s when all the all the movies about Russians are about you know Russian defectors, and they're all sort of just their big Soviet brother is is always you know watching them to make sure that uh, you know they don't try and escape to the West where where things are so much better. But I guess that's just the the propaganda I was I was brought up with it's the americans saying that all the all these russians really want is is money in a capitalist way of life and then the the russian government is keeping them from it but you watch a movie like the diamond arm and you know maybe it's propagandistic in the other direction where it's saying oh you 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 have a lot of freedom see this guy can just go to istanbul and it's and it's no big deal so I don't know. I, I I have I'm I have I'm having trouble negotiating where you know what what reality was like in the in the Soviet Union at this time. I think this is definitely propaganda. This film. I I mean, that's not to say that the American propaganda about Russia isn't also bullshit. But there is a lot of of parading in this movie. You know, cons- un, un, like starting with the titles that say, you know, these diamonds and gold are all real and they're they have been you know <laughs> donated from our sparkling government to show you. Uh, just how great we're all doing. And then there are these scenes of all these um, huge and, and uh, you know, clean boats and, and uh, cruise ships. There's, um, 
that awesome Weeping Willow restaurant, which is almost like the Four Seasons mm-hmm. with a live swan swimming around a fountain indoors. <laughs> yeah. And then getting served, uh, you know, a wild duck and, and all of these very opulent things. There's even, when, once he comes back from, from Turkey, his wife, I mean, they're all very thrilled, though, that he's even leaving the country because they all say that we've never been able to. And, oh, yes, this wonderful you know, chance and, oh, he was going to buy me a, a fur coat, but this is more important. Um, I, I'm not, I'm also a little unclear as to why he was going, which maybe was just the trans, the subtitles or, or I don't, I'm not totally sure, but um, I do like when he comes back and his, you know, he's worried about what's happening with his arm and he can't tell anyone because the government told him not to tell anyone. And then his wife is sitting there asking him all these questions. And, and one of the questions that she asks him is, uh, you know, how was Coca-Cola? And he just kind of like, he makes this face that's like, meh. <laughs> you know, it's overblown. It's not that great. Which was which was interesting also, you know, in comparison to all these other movies we, we saw that, that this really was a topic that, <laughs> you know, people were having some serious, uh, you know, FOMO, as the kids say nowadays, uh, of not having Coca-Cola in, in the East. Yeah, I mean, Amer- American capitalism and, and Coca-Cola are, are synonymous, oh, I yeah. guess, in, in the 60s. But also um, with, with um, you know, uh, Miranov, he, I thought he was pretty dashing. He had some sweet, he had a silver suit that was pretty awesome. <laughs> um, and then there was also that woman that they bring in as a spy who was very clearly trying to be super trendy, but it was funny because just everything about her is so the opposite of, you know, the sort of glamorous Western woman. Like she had a mus- like a very like muscular body type and she had this very like yellow mm. bleached hair and like, you know, but the big sixties makeup, I don't know. It was kind of interesting to see that it's not that she was not attractive, but it was just very, you know, it wouldn't have ever flown in the West. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it was the era of, you know, Twiggy and all of these, these super thin women in, in mini dresses in, in the West. And I think that the, the movies of the, of this time or, you know, they, they had to go with that, uh, that, that sort of style and those those types of women, whereas uh, I guess the Russians weren't too clued in on what was happening in swinging London at, at the time. And for what it's worth, for for at least from IMDb, <laughs> from some stranger, but th- this tracks from what I know about uh, Russian uh, film history. But uh, that you know, showing prostitution, implying prostitution, and implying uh, getting drunk, uh, these were all things that that the Russian government typically censors did not typically allow. But I guess framing it as this comedy uh, where he's doing it for the good, the right reasons and, you know, no one ever goes for the prostitute. And, you know, he's always, you know, even next to a woman whose top gets, you know, shot off, he's he's still not interested. He still loves his wife. Uh, so there was a lot of moralistic, uh, you know, sort of stuff. But the fact that that even was referenced is, is uh, you know, was, was, I think, part of probably why this, this film was so popular that you could even get this stuff even partially in was kind of um, uh, exciting, I think. But yeah, I don't know. I, I thought this was interesting and, and also in a weird way did kind of, it, it definitely represents, I guess, an attitude of, you know, nationalism, of uh, showing just what Russia has to offer. It's something that, you know, for citizens to, to look up to and, and feel proud about. 
you know, and it was pretty, it was pretty solid comedy for, you know, from what I can tell. I'm sure there's even funnier jokes for someone who speaks the language or especially who lived during the time. Yeah, I'm sure that, um, you know, all those, all those signs we see out in front of the, the apartment complex that went untranslated, uh, I'm sure that, that a lot of those are, you know, just the fact that those, those signs were everywhere is probably, you know, a real cultural touchstone. And, and then uh, there were probably jokes on there that we were missing. And, but I, I think all in all, it actually, it, it translates. It's, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty funny on a universal level. I mean, I think you have to have a taste for, for this era and be willing to try something a little out of the, the usual comfort zone because it has a very different feel from American comedies of the time. But I think it's pretty universal. Yeah, I was, I was impressed. So, yeah, I don't know. Let's, so what did we learn? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think we got to most of the points throughout. You know, it seemed like there's a, there's a big push to, to show that, that the Russians were just like us. There's no difference. So why are we fighting? Makes no sense that we're fighting because everybody's just after the same thing. We're all just humans. Why can't we all just get along? And that's, uh, that's an easier point to get across in a comedy than it would be a, uh, a paranoid thriller or a, a drama. Right. I think that's a, that's a definitely a huge point. Probably the only way that you could get these points across was in a comedy. I'm trying to think of any dramatic movies that, uh, you know, from the 60s that are terribly sympathetic and not just, you know, again, like the one there's one guy who has second thoughts and he's the good one. He's one of the good guys, whereas, you know, but the whole country, blah, blah, blah. I bet if we dug deep, we could find some, but it really not part of the, the most popular movies of the time. That's for sure. I, and I think that there's a lot of them are, I mean, it, there is this sort of countercultural protest, even from the earliest, from one, two, three on, um, that there's, that America is not, uh, American capitalism is not 100% great. It's, uh, there's a lot to criticize about the way, about American imperialism and, and capitalism and, and that... We should come. We should meet in the middle with the Russians and, and sort of uh, understand their side a bit and why our, our capitalist imperialist dreams are uh, kind of bullshit. And um, so the even before the, the the heavy protesting of the Vietnam War and in, in uh, you know in the late '60s, we've got this sort of sensibility of defying your uh, your government a little bit uh, early on in the '60s. Yeah, that is interesting. And it's also, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see and to compare it to today as well. I feel that I don't know how many movies like this get made. It's funny. I mean, I don't know. This is semi-off topic, but I saw um, Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse uh, not too long ago, the, the Rudolph Valentino movie. And, you know, this is a strongly anti-war movie, but it only came out like two or three years after World War One. It was over. And it was amazing to me that, so quick like i just can't even imagine if like you know 9-11 happened and then in 2003 we'd come out with an anti-war movie you know it's just it's it's interesting to me whenever these can get made and and especially during something that is you know as dr strangelove shows is so horrifying Mm -hmm. Uh, and the the reality of which is like everywhere you know uh all encompassing and, and creepy and super super paranoia inducing you know in a a way that i think a lot of people that i know right now are are feeling that that uh you know impending doom creeping paranoia uh take over their lives 
So to be able to reflect this, you know, either in, in the more optimistic or the more pessimistic way uh, in Hollywood, especially at a time where, you know, there was a lot of censorship on, on all sides uh, is great. And it's amazing that this stuff even got through, whether or not it was <laughs> really that wonderful or memorable. <laughs> I mean, and I think that there was just so much fear and paranoia that there was this idea that we need to you know, diffuse this somehow. Right. I think it was, uh, you know, comedy is tragedy plus time, right? So it's uh, rather than cry about this, you know, this impending uh, nuclear holocaust that will come if, if World War III happens, let's, let's try to laugh about it and, and dispel these fears a little bit, I guess. I think that's good. Should we talk about next week? So on the next episode, we are going to do something even more different than we did on this, which is to pick a theme of uh, a year, which is something that Bart came up with that I ripped from him for another podcast. And now here I am on a podcast with Bart and we're doing it. Right. It all comes back around again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thanks for listening. I, I was Bart. And this was Jenna, <laughs> and, and, and this was uh, Cinema 60. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io La Conoscevo Bene by Piero Piccione. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter at Cinema60Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.